beautiful picture of community and being a community of the church. Hi, my name is Mike. It's good to be with you. How are you guys today? Hope well. It's nice and cool in here, isn't it? Which is nice. If nothing else, you're going to get some air conditioning for the next 35 minutes. Um, we've been in a series all summer long that we're wrapping up today called The Bible. And all summer long, we've been looking at these pivotal moments in history of great stories of men and women, just like you and I, that God worked through in an extraordinary way. And we will continue being in the Bible after this series is over, um, obviously in different series. But today we're going to wrap things up. So as we do, would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, we thank you for this time that we have in this space. And we pray, God, that you'd open our hearts and minds to receive what you have for each of us today, God. Would you make us more aware, even in this moment, of your presence and your love for us? And as we open your word, God, may you teach us something new that we haven't known before about you and your character and your love for us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of my favorite hobbies, uh, I don't know if it's a hobby, I should say interest, is I love movies. I love going to the movies. I like seeing different movies. And one of my favorite all-time films is a movie called The Born Identity, starring Matt Damon. Have you heard of this film? There he is, in all the glory on the screen, Matt Damon. In this film, Matt Damon plays a CIA, CIA agent who's lost his memory, and he doesn't know who he is. And in the beginning of the film, we find um, born in the slopes of Switzerland, and he just hitched a ride to Germany with this young lady named Marie. And he's being chased by the police, and he doesn't know why, but he leaves us, doesn't tell Marie this, and as the film goes along, finally he gets so frustrated with the situation that he tells Marie these words. He says, I don't know who I am, and I don't know where I'm going. Later, at a truck stop along a snowy highway, he and Marie get a cup of coffee. And they sit down, and Bourne tries to think back and reflect on what little he knows about his story. And he turns to Marie and says, who has six passports and a stack of cash in a safety deposit box in Switzerland? When we walked into this cafe, the first thing I did was start to look for an exit. When we walked in, I could tell you that there's six cars in the parking lot, and I memorized all six license plates. I could tell you that the waitress is left-handed, and the guy at the counter weighs 215 pounds and knows how to carry himself. And I can run a half a mile at a full sprint before my hands even start to shake. And Bourne says to Marie, why would I know that? How could I know that and not know who I am? Now, I'm not one who typically equates a Hollywood action film with my spiritual life, not too often. But I couldn't help but think, leaving the theater, that my life is a lot like Jason Bourne, and I'm a lot like Jason Bourne. Maybe a little bit like Jason Bourne. Just a little bit. And I mean it by this. You know, I know a lot of facts about a lot of different things, most of which are pretty trivial. I know a lot of different things about a lot of stuff. But when I think about who I am in my spiritual life, oftentimes I have spiritual amnesia, and I forget who I am. And more importantly, whose I am. You know, the people of God for centuries have had an issue with remembering who they are. People of God for generations have forgotten who they are. And throughout the Bible, and we've seen it all summer long, that we have a loving God that continually reminds his people 
who they truly are. You know, perhaps the most helpful letter in all of the New Testament that Paul wrote about our identity is found in his letter to the Ephesians. In fact, Paul wrote this letter to this church he planted in Ephesus in Asia Minor in the first century. Paul spent a little over two years in Ephesus raising people up in the faith. And people came to faith in Christ over that time span. And after two years, he went to plant another church. And what he left behind was a group of people that were committed to Jesus, that loved the Lord, and had new hearts. But they were new hearts with old habits. And this church started to slip back into their old vices. So Paul writes this letter affectionately to this church he loves to remind them of what it meant to be people of the way and what that was all about. You know, in Paul's letters, and we're going to see here in this scripture text we're going to read in just a moment, that there's an intentional formula that Paul uses. First, he's going to tell us who we are in Christ. And then he'll say, this is how you're to live because of what's true of you. Theologians call this an indicative followed by an imperative. The indicative states what God has already done And an imperative is a command to live out what is already true of us. He never reverses them. So, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, if you were to summarize them in four words, they would be, remember who you are. And for the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul just showers down words of affirmation on this young house church. Words they really needed to hear. And in fact, on the screen, here's just a few of the ones that are given. Paul says this, and he writes these words. He says to the church, you are blessed, you are chosen, holy, blameless, predestined sons and daughters, redeemed, forgiven, under Christ, in Christ, praise of his glory, sealed in Christ, marked in Christ, made alive with Christ, raised up in Christ, saved in Christ. You are his handiwork, purchased by the blood of Christ, citizens with God's people and so on and so on. He lavishes his affirmation over the church. If you would, open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And we're going to take a moment to look at verses 3 through 13 this morning. If you don't have your Bible with you, there's an insert that has the verses down there for you. It'll also be up on the screen. But in all of the Bible, this this is such a fascinating um, piece of verses of Scripture In fact, it's very Trinitarian in nature, speaking of the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's one of the most heavily theological verses in the entire New Testament. In fact, as we read it in English, it's ten verses. In the original Greek, it was one long sentence with no commas, just Paul writing furiously these words of love to this church. And here's what Paul writes. Look at verse 3. Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship and daughtership through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given In us, the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed and you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Wow. I even paused throughout that, and it's a long, long piece, isn't it? It's amazing. Can you feel the passion as Paul writes these words to a church he loves to remind them of who they are? This morning, I want to look at just one identity that we haven't mentioned yet that will speak to our identity as individuals, but also as a church community, and that's the identity of adoption. When Paul writes this church in and around Ephesus, he reminds them that in love, God adopted them. Meaning that their significance, their worth, their value was not tied to how smart they were or how well they functioned or how attractive they were or how much they could produce. You see, in Ephesus, they had a worldview that emphasized all of those things. I want to take a moment to just look back at very briefly the first century of why this was such a big deal and why this idea of adoption was so incredibly revolutionary. See, between the Old Testament, there's a 400-year gap between the Old and the New Testament, 400 years, and it's known as the intertestimonial period. And during that time, Alexander the Great, remember him? Alexander the Great set out to conquer the known world, to Hellenize it, in other words, to turn it Greek. And what he and his armies did is they set out to win a battle. They would take on an enemy. They would defeat a region or a country. And the very first thing they would do after that is they'd build the theater so the actors could start performing Greek mythology to the people. Next thing they would do is they'd build a temple to introduce the people to the Greek gods and to get them to start worshiping those Greek gods. The third thing they would do is build a gymnasium, a school back in those days, to, to learn Greek and to study the poets and the philosophers of the day. They also trained the people right away in the Greek games, in the sports of the day, of which they competed in in the nude, because what the Greeks valued more than anything else was the perfection of the human ideal. And we see that today, don't we? We were to take a field trip after church to the Getty Museum. We would see it today in the art and in the sculptures of the time, this, this image of bodily perfection that their culture strived for. And not only did they strive for bodily perfection, but they also strived for the perfection of having a sound mind and a sound body. In fact, during this period of time, it was quite common that you'd pass someone on the road and you would say to them, may you have a sound mind and a sound body. It was a way they greeted one another because it's what they valued so highly and was so important to them. 
there was this huge pressure for everyone in that culture to live up to that ideal, that standard of excellence. Glory run through achievement. So, how good looking you were, how smart you were, how great an athlete you were, or good in military battle determined your worth and value in that culture. I am so glad we don't struggle with that today. <laughs> he says sarcastically, right? Oh my goodness, sounds a little familiar in some ways, doesn't it? Now, I ask you this question. For a culture that holds the human perfection up to that standard, what do you think they did with those parts that weren't so perfect? More importantly, those people that didn't measure up to that standard. Well, what the people in this time did is they pushed them to the margins. In fact, we have records of circuses that took place during the Greek and Roman Empire, throughout their empire, made up of nothing more than the deformed and the disabled of society that were put on stage for the amusement of the crowds. We have records of um, what they called the exposure of infants, which if you had a deformed or a, a disabled child that you didn't want, or let's say you gave birth to a daughter and you wanted a son, if you wanted to dis dispose of your child for any reason, you could take that child outside the city walls up to a hillside where unwanted children were taken, and you could leave them there to be exposed to the elements and the animals. This was also an area where slave ships would come through, and these slave ships... These, people, these slave traders knew where these kids were kept. And if you look at the slide right here of Ephesus, you can see where Ephesus was located. Ephesus was right on the shore, wedged between the mountains and the sea. So these slave traders would come through town, and they would come in and they'd look for children that they wanted. And they wanted to take on as slaves into their household. And they would take kids. And in this culture, they would say that if you took a child, they were yours and you own them. This is what happens when a culture worships at the altar of human perfection. Now I'm going to reread three of the verses we just looked at, verses three through five. And with all of that backstory, listen closely to these words that Paul gives to this church. This church had forgotten who they are. He says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Paul says that you are blameless, meaning without defect in his sight. He said that he predestined us as sons and daughters, which would have spoken to their sonship and daughtership. There is no more powerful language Paul could have used to describe the love of a God, their God, to talk about choosing, loving, adopting, you know, we're just five verses into this letter to the Ephesians, and there would not have been a dry eye in the house. Later, Paul would address the slaves in the community. So guaranteed, in the church, there were people who had been rescued. 
And we found out later on that the church itself were the ones, oftentimes, really the only ones, that went up to the hillside to rescue these kids. The church adopted these kids into their homes. So we know for a fact there were kids that were slaves, grown up as slaves, slaves raised as slaves, that were now adopted and given this new identity, this new identity in Christ. Paul's going to lead with the idea that we are God's holy people and that God is not like the Greeks. That he chooses in love beforehand and he takes us imperfect people and presents us to the Father, holy and without defect. And the image we're given is adoption. You know, back in this time, adoption meant son-placing. And if you were a father who were, was unable to have a son or didn't have a son and wanted to continue your family name, what you would do is you would go and seek out a child that was a slave to adopt as your own. And the way it would work is a father would approach the, slave, the son's owner, the slave's owner, and say, I want to adopt your slave to be my son. And the father would initiate with that child and say, will you accept this and become my son? And if the son said yes... At that moment, the slave's debts were canceled. The slave's name was changed. He was given a new identity. His identity became that of his family, of his father. And one of the most powerful things about Roman adoption is you could disown your biological children, but once you adopted a child, they could never be disowned. Isn't that powerful? can never disown an adopted child. Of all the images Paul could use in such a screwed up culture, he uses this image of God, of God being a God who runs to the top of the hill and picks up the unwanted and the ones who society says aren't valuable and don't reach up to the standard. And God says, I'm going to choose you to be my child. This is the image that we're given of a loving God. You know, the reality in looking, and that's a, that's a lot to take in. But the reality for you and I as we look at this scripture verse, these verses, this idea, this truth, is that being the church, you and I, before coming to Christ, were slaves. And we've been rescued. Because we've been rescued, we have a new father, a new status. We share in our family's high status. All of our debts are canceled, and we can never be disowned. The image is this, of a father who disowns his biological child for a season so that you and I can become sons and daughters of the king. That's who we are in Christ. That's what we need to be reminded of, of who we are. Paul continues in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 with, you remember when I said the, the indicative followed by the imperative? Here comes the imperative. The indicative is who we are, and now the imperative is to live out what's true of us. And Paul says it in chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the call you have received. Paul says you are this already, now live what is already true of you. 
You know, as a little aside, we went through Rooted last spring, and my friend Eric um, was so moved by this verse that he actually got a tattoo on his wrist after Rooted was over that says Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. And I, I showed up and was with him when he got this tattoo, and he goes, Mike, I never for, want to forget that I am on a journey to become who I already am. So this morning, we've got tattoo artists out in the lobby that will <laughs> scroll a little. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. We should do that. That would be a good idea. Maybe next week. But he says, you are this already, so live out what's already true of you. Here's two quick examples of what this looks like um, that my friend Mike came up with. I love this. First example is this. I, Mike Kenyon, mastered being single from ages 18 to 29. I mastered it. I did as a single guy whatever I wanted to do. I could stay up as late as I wanted. I didn't have an allowance anymore. Until I got married again, I had an allowance. But I could spend my money the way I wanted to. I could do the dishes if I wanted to or not. I could do my laundry or not. I did what I wanted. But then when I turned 29 and got married to my beautiful wife, Allison, it changed. And it changed with one phrase, one word, two words, I do. And at that moment, I became husband. Now, do I have any idea what it meant to be a husband? No idea. I read a book, half of it, and a reading. I knew a little, but I knew nothing. And yet, in that moment, I was as much a husband as someone who'd been married 50 years. But from that day forward, starting at day one of being husband, I knew, and I've come to know much more now, that I will spend the rest of my life becoming who I already am. Second example. I have two great kids, Austin's 11, Kylie's 10. And I'll never forget the months leading up to Allison's, you know, being pregnant, getting ready to have my first child, and we went to Lamaze class. I read some more books, you know, trying to figure this thing out. And then came the eight or nine hours of labor. I've forgotten the exact time. I'm sure Allison hasn't, the length. And all that time comes, and my son in that moment is born. My wife gives birth, and the nurse hands my son to me, and I'm holding this fragile, beautiful, alien-looking kind of baby. And I'll never forget in that moment, I'm thinking, one, this is a miracle of God, and two, I hope I don't break this child in the next several days. Parents, can I get an amen? They're so fragile, right? And in that moment, I was a father. Now I ask you, did I have a clue what it meant to be a father? No clue whatsoever. But I was as much a father as someone who had a 50-year-old son or daughter. You get the point. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are adopted into his family as sons and daughters. We are who our father is already in Christ. Our identity is in him as sons and daughters of the king. We're royalty. And yet, we live in the now and not yet, don't we? So we will spend the rest of our lives becoming the fullness of who we are. Paul will say this, uh, so let me ask you this. If this is true in earthly terms about us living, being a you know, husband and father, if it's true in earthly terms, how much more so as children of God? Paul says this much more radically. He says, put off anything that is no longer you, that doesn't feed your new identity. You know, when I remember who I am, I'm free to give grace because I've received grace. 
When I remember who I am, I'm free to love because I've received love. When I remember who I am, I'm able to serve because of the mercy that's been shown to me. And for you and I, all of us as a church, when we remember who we are, we just live differently. Now, all that to say, why does that matter at the end of the day? Why is this important to us? Why does it matter? Maybe another question to ask is, how do we best then feed our identity to become fully who we are? You know, our culture would say, I would think, would most likely be we need to kind of become more disciplined and become more inward focused to fully realize our true potential. But the Bible says something just the opposite. The Bible says to grow in our new identity, we actually need each other. To become fully who we are, we need to actually look more outside of ourselves and look at other people and help them grow. Ultimately, it's to be the church. You know, the New Testament demonstrates one crucial truth. And that's that there's an inescapable link between our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. And it's a link that we can't get out of, that we can't escape, or we can't break. So, our relationship with God directly affects our relationship with other people, And our relationship with other people directly impacts our relationship with God. It's how God designed it. You know, one of the most common phrases used in the Bible, and it's used 36 times in the New Testament, is the phrase, one another. One another. It's used time and again throughout the New Testament. And here's just a few examples. They're in your bulletin and on the screen as well. It says, it says, accept one another. Love one another. Live in harmony with one another. Forgive one another. Be unified together with one another. Serve one another. Bear with one another. Encourage. Spur one another on. And there's, there's others. But it's this through line of this identity of what the church, what you and I are meant to be about. It's the key markers of this movement called the church, our identity. And it's powerful. You know, last week as Jeff was teaching, one of the parts he taught on was Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came down on the disciples and empowered them in that moment to speak different languages. If you remember what we talked about, people were gathered and the disciples were able to speak in the native tongues of those who gathered so that they could hear the gospel in their own language. And as we read, the people were amazed when this was happening. They were confused. And collectively, they all asked, what does this mean? And at that moment, the church was born. And the disciples began to assimilate the people into community and figuring out what that looked like. And they started to, what we know now are the practices of the church. And what a beautiful expression of the church it was. In fact, it was so awesome. It was so incredible that even people in the first and second century that were hostile towards Christianity or were just observing this weird new religion that had started, we have letters today that we read of what they said to each other, writing back and forth about the church. And they made what they didn't say. Let me say what they didn't say. They didn't say that the church was petty or that the people were selfish or obnoxious. They weren't negative. 
It was just the opposite. They were positive. They said the church loves one another. They, they like each other. They spend time together. That they meet each other's needs. They wrote that they care for the poor. They even look outside of themselves and look at people in their communities. And people were fascinated as they wrote this about what they saw in the church. Even the church's enemies appreciated how they lived with one another and supported each other. Perhaps the most famous picture of this is in Acts, of this revolutionary look at what the church is like. And I want to just kind of land with these verses. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says this. This is how they lived and practiced this out and lived it out. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added, and look at this, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There's a couple things I want you to see in this text, these verses. The first is this, the word devoted. This word devoted, they devoted themselves to each other. And the original language, this is such strong language, meaning that they had a single-minded pursuit towards these things. That they arranged their schedules, their times, their priority to make being in this community of utmost importance to them. Single-minded, top of the priority list. It also says they were in fellowship. In the Greek, that word fellowship is koinonia, which means pretty much to share with one another to have things in common. And where they didn't have commonalities, they learned from each other to be more blended and have a common purpose and commonalities together. They also did things together in ways to build this community in a way that they invested into this time with each other. They said, we're going to make an investment into what is happening in this place and what God's doing. A couple other things. They, they taught one another. And what did they teach? Jesus Christ. They testified about Jesus Christ and his purpose and what he did and what that means for our lives. They worshiped together. They broke bread. They had communion. They prayed for and with one another. They were generous. They were a generous people. They gave to one another when they had needs, but they even gave outside the church to those that had needs that weren't part of their community. They saw needs and they responded to them, putting God's love on display. Lastly, we see in this text they were in small groups. They'd gather in the temple courts, but they'd also get together in homes and have good meals together. I'm assuming they had good meals together. I like good meals. Do you like good meals? They had meals together. They spent time together in fellowship. And again, that word fellowship sounds really churchy, but it just means they shared in life together. They found people and said, I'm going to get into life and we're going to be in community together. I don't want you to miss the significance of that. That that's a picture of what the church is meant to be and what God wants the church to be for us. We call that at Mariners, this concept of being together and looking outward, being in community for community. 
And we realize that how we treat each other and learn to live in the messiness of human relationships, and can I get an amen that life's messy and relationships are messy? We realize that how we learn to live in that is is not only a reflection of our love for God and, and coming closer to the Lord, but we're aware that people are watching. And when we learn to do that well, and again, it's messy, we're not perfect, but when we lean in and say we're going to give it a go, number one, the Holy Spirit shows up, doesn't he? The Holy Spirit transforms us as individuals, doesn't he? And at the same time as a community. And the world gets curious and says, man, what's going on in there? What's going on in your life that I see how you live in the neighborhood and on the sports field and at work and at the gym and at Starbucks? You're you're just different. You're not weird different. (laughs) But there's something about you. What's happening? And it's in those moments that we have an opening, right? Sometimes it's an opening just right there to share share about Jesus and who he is and his love for us. Other times it's just an opportunity to give a kind word in Jesus' name. But it's in those moments that that we grow, our church grows, and more importantly, people come to faith in Christ. They're attracted to that kind of community. You know, when we come to faith in Christ, we are given a new identity as sons and daughters of the King. And you and I will spend the rest of our lives becoming who we already are. The early church knew that their identity and their relationship with God was directly connected, because God designed it that way, with the people around them. And that there was interplay with both, this individual relationship with God and the community, that both were needed. And they lived that out. So, practically, as we come in the land, this plane here, how does this relate to us? How do we practically hold on to this? You may have noticed my cool little um, life group shirt. I don't know if you can see it on the screen. Life groups. The way we live this best out in this community is through Rooted in Life Groups. If you're new to our church, Rooted is the first 10 weeks of life groups. Before you get in a life group, we have you go through Rooted. Because at Rooted, you're going to get the foundations of the church, of this community, of what it means to live a rhythm of being in community together. That takes place in Rooted. But boy, would it be a shame if it just ended at Rooted. And the good news is it doesn't continues on in life groups. This year we're doing life groups a bit differently. We're going to do life groups in three sessions, just like Rooted is. Fall, winter, and spring. Ten-week chunks, and then four to six weeks off where you can have more meals together, go serve together, but it's like the informal time. But we'll be meeting for three ten-week sessions. And the next one's starting with a big fall kickoff. And this is kind of announcement mode right now, just for a minute. But it was going to kick off September 18th in a big party here on our campus for everyone participating in Rooted in Life groups. We have a time of worship, time to dedicate the fall, um, food on the patio, it's a theme here, meal together, and we're going to start our year together. And we want to invite you to be a part of it. It's the best place we know to grow beyond the weekend service and get you in real community with one another and together. But it's going to take an investment, and it's going to cost you something. And it might cost you more or differently than you think it's going to cost you. But it's worth it. Specifically this. Athletes know about costs, right? For the last month, as a little quick example, football players in particular have been training for three and a half weeks for the season, right? One of the schools we've adopted, in fact, is Saddleback just up the road. 
the Gauchos. We've got a lot of football players in our church that go to school there. And they've been training, working together, investing in each other. And the fruit is, one, they're growing in their own skills, but also they're preparing as a team to go out and compete. And that's, as athletes, that's without the Holy Spirit. Imagine us as a church when we gather as imperfect people together with the Holy Spirit as the center. And we invest in each other's lives. And the Spirit moves with us. How powerful is that? God makes a big impact in our lives. So what's it going to cost you? Here it is, real quickly. It's going to cost you your time. It's going to be a couple hours a week. You're going to have to prioritize. And a day you can help choose what day's best for you. You and your group will decide that. But it's going to take a couple hours a week. It's going to be an opportunity, and you're going to, it's going to cost you being a little more vulnerable, maybe, than maybe you've been comfortable with or you have in the past. Give you an opportunity to open up a little bit more with a group of people and, and learn to trust people, maybe in a new way, maybe in a way you haven't before. But that's the invitation to be in community, have God move in our lives in radical ways, and to do it together. This is what we were intended to experience. You know, much in modern life is going to seek to come against that, and we know that. A lot of modern life is, is like in conflict with us experiencing that kind of community together. And it's something each of us are going to have to fight for, to have. You know, I'm going to invite Ethan and the band to come up as we move into the response time. And in just a moment, we're going to look back, even right now, at what we started with, talking about our identity and being adopted children of the king. So if you would, and just right now, would you close your eyes for a moment? And with your eyes closed, I want you to just take a moment and just center yourself. Know that the presence of God is in this place. What, ask the question of yourself, what identities have you taken on that aren't of the Lord, that aren't you? Take a moment to ask God to bring those to mind right now. What are those painful things in your past or decisions that you've made that have driven you into those identities, those false identities? Now, as you identify them, maybe it's one, maybe it's more, just envision handing those to the Lord, just lifting those up to the Lord. You know, some of you here today are caught up in shame of past sins. Some of you struggle with idolatry, that is, desiring to be something that you're not. Some of you here feel inferior and feel like God could never love you that you can never really be a son or daughter of the king. Heavenly Father, as we sit in this moment, Lord, we know that you are present and you are here. God, we hold on to the truth that we are your sons and daughters and that we are dearly loved by you. And God, we pray that you would bind the enemy over and again, God, that just speaks lies to us of who he says we are that aren't true. Boy, Lord, we need to be reminded that we are your children, that we are deeply loved by you, God. Would you remind us, even in this moment, to lay claim of those truths so that we can live as free people and become who we truly are. 
pray in Jesus' name. Amen.